We're picking up our studies in the little book of Titus and we come to this section in Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through to 10. So would you turn in your Bibles please to Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his own inspired word. Doctrine is dry. Doctrine is dull. Doctrine is divisive. Doctrine is outdated. Those statements generally reflect the attitude and the understanding of the modern evangelical when it comes to the teaching of doctrine. That it's outdated, that it's outmoded, that it's unnecessary. Now that kind of attitude doesn't reflect the importance attached to the teaching of doctrine in the New Testament. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16 and he says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. He says in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13, until I come, give attendance to doctrine. And then in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, he warns of a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Now that note is emphasized here in the passage that's before us. You will notice that Paul opens the section in verse 1 with the words, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he closes the section in verse 10 with the words that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Like two great bookends, this section is contained between these words that emphasize the importance of doctrine. I want you to notice four things this morning about the teaching of doctrine. We're going to stand back from the passage a little bit. We'll look at the details next week. But I want you to notice this emphasis that Paul places here on doctrine. And the first thing I want you to notice is the importance of teaching doctrine. You'll remember that in chapter 1, Paul gives Titus instructions concerning the eldership, the leadership uh, of the churches in Crete. Now in chapter 2, he moves from the eldership to the membership, from the leadership to the laity. And in a series of ethical imperatives, he gives instructions to various groups as to how they should behave. He speaks of the older men and of the older woman, the younger men and the younger women, and finally he speaks about slaves. He speaks of the lifestyle that those who have become God's people should have. He speaks about Christian morality, what God's people are to be like, how they should behave, what they should do. He's speaking about Christian ethics. 
And standing at each end of this ethical instruction, there is this apostolic emphasis upon doctrine. He speaks in verse 1 of sound doctrine. And then in verse 10 of divine doctrine, or the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, Paul is saying that the moral behavior of God's people is dependent upon and related to their doctrinal understanding. Look at what he says there in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now that word accords, the AV says, which becomes means appropriate or fitting. The RSV translates it befits. In other words, the moral behavior of the people of God was to be regulated by the doctrine that Titus taught. Now, this is very important. There cannot be Christian morality without the power and authority of Christian doctrine. In an interview with Clement Attlee, the former Prime Minister of, of Great Britain who died in 1967, the interviewer asked him about his views of Christianity. And he said this, he says, I believe the ethic, but not the mumbo-jumbo. Well, what I'm saying to you this morning is that you cannot have the ethic without the mumbo-jumbo. You remove the, the doctrine There is no basis, no foundation for Christian ethics. The whole doctrine of man, for instance, being an image bearer of, of God, brings dignity to man over and against the animals. And if you remove that, then abortion and euthanasia just become acceptable. That you can terminate life at the beginning Uh, or at the end of life, and it's no more significant than the putting down of a dog. That ethics and doctrine are related and dependent upon each other. And Paul was convinced of the necessity of doctrine in moderating and moulding the behaviour of the Christians in Crete. And we see that throughout the New Testament. When the apostles faced problems of aberrant behaviour among the people of God, a lack of sanctification, a lack of growth in grace, uh, difficulties in personal relationships, what they did in their letters was to bring them face to face with the great doctrines of the faith. There was a problem in behaviour, yet the answer to that problem was sound doctrine. Let me give one illustration concerning one doctrine, the doctrine of the Incarnation. The church at Philippi, in many ways, was a very attractive church. It was probably the most attractive church in uh, the New Testament. Uh, But there were problems, and there were people standing on their dignity. There were people who were insisting on their rights. I don't want to be a doormat, they say. I've been in this church longer than that person. I've been a deacon longer than that person. Uh, I I was baptized before that person. I was a a foundation member of that church. And and this um, division was causing serious rifts within the congregation. And that problem is so common even today, so common that it's banal. But how does Paul deal with that problem? Well, he digs into the doctrine of the incarnation. And he says, 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be retained, something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we have there is some of the greatest words ever penned on the theology of the Incarnation. He who was in the form of God emptied himself and obscured his glory behind a servant's form and beneath human appearance and under the anathema of the cross. And why did Paul write this? Because there were two women in Philippi who couldn't get on with each other. And the answer to their pettiness, the answer to their problem, the answer to that personality clash was to bring them face to face with this significant, shudderingly inspiring doctrine of the incarnation. To show these two women that if Christ himself did not hold on to his place, neither should they. Here is one who could have said, I know my rights. Here is one who could have stood on his dignity and said, I don't want to be a doormat and trampled upon by by men. I don't want to be treated as a non-entity. But he didn't. He emptied himself, taking to his deity our humanity, adopting the role of a servant and giving himself up to the cross. In how many churches there are divisions and problems. And the divisions and problems are down to me. Me, my and I. And the answer to this me generation is me humiliation. Is to humble ourselves and leave God to lift us up. People insisting on their rights, asserting themselves is, is abhorrent. In the light of the doctrine of the incarnation. And in Philippi, Paul brings them face to face with the doctrine of the incarnation. He takes them to the theology of Bethlehem. If Jesus humbled himself to such a degree in such a way for me, can I not humble myself for you? It's really impossible to be petty when you think of the the doctrine of the incarnation, when you think of him coming into our world as a, an embryo in the womb of a virgin or as a baby in the manger of Bethlehem or as a man growing up in, in Nazareth. That's how doctrine cracks, molds, moderates our behaviour. And here again, the motivation to moral behaviour is theological understanding. And we can repeat that again and again by examples from the New Testament. When the apostles faced issues of sanctification, of growth in grace, the answer they gave was Christian doctrine. A man cannot live life in Jesus Christ without understanding who Jesus Christ is. These people in Crete needed to moderate their behaviour 
And Paul tells Titus the catalyst for the change in their lives for this growth in grace is to teach sound doctrine. Doctrine and behavior go together. They are related. What you believe affects how you live. That's the importance of teaching doctrine. Secondly, notice the fruit of teaching doctrine. We've already noticed that doctrine is vital for moral change, but I want you to notice how that's illustrated in the passage. In Titus 2, Paul lists various groups that Titus had to teach. So in verse 2, he speaks of the older men. In verse 3, he speaks of the older women. In verses 4 to 5, he speaks of younger women. Verse 6, younger men. And then uh, servants in verses 9 and 10. Now when we take all these um, instructions together, what Paul is looking for is self-controlled, upright, and godly living. Now that may not seem very remarkable, but remember who these people were and what they were naturally like. Do you remember chapter 1 and verse 12? Paul, uh, speaking of one of the ancient poets, says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, And then he adds in verse 13, this testimony is true. Here Paul quotes a 600-year-old Cretan piece of poetry that describes the Cretan temperament. And Paul agrees with that assessment. He says, this testimony is true. There was uh, among the Cretans a a national uh, reputation and a, a natural inclination to this kind of behavior. This was what the stereotypical Cretan looked like. A liar. They were notorious liars. So identified with lying were these people on the island of Crete that the verb Cretanize meant to engage in dishonesty. It had made its way into the Greek language because of the reputation of the inhabitants of Crete. You couldn't believe a word that they said. They made promises, they took vows, they entered into covenants and agreements that meant nothing to them. To use our expression, you couldn't trust them as far as you could throw them. They were liars. They were evil beasts, brutes, says the NIV. The poet who wrote this was a man called Epimenes. And uh, he pointed out in his writing that there were no wild animals on the island of Crete. But he says that the inhabitants made up for the absence of these wild beasts. They are evil beasts, these Cretans. That is to say, they acted and behaved like wild animals. They they acted on the level of natural instinct, satisfying their sensual appetites. They had no respect for man's dignity as a human being, behaving in an immoral and a savage way. They were lazy gluttons. In that warm Mediterranean climate, these Cretans hated work. They loved to sit about and drink and eat. They were, in other words, self-indulgent, lazy oafs. Now, Paul agrees with that assessment. He says in verse 13, this of chapter 1, this testimony is true. He had ministered on the island of Crete. He had seen this at first hand and he had concluded that there was this propensity towards laziness, dishonesty and savagery. 
Now you think for a moment of all the human misery behind that statement in chapter 1 and verse 12. Think of being married to a man like this, to a perpetual and habitual liar. He comes home late one night smelling of somebody else's perfume with lipstick on his collar and you ask him where he's been and he spins a story about having to work late. And you know it's not true because he's a lazy glutton and he wouldn't get off his backside to do anything. But you dare not question him because he's a, an evil beast, an evil brute, and he could fly off the handle and pulverize you, abuse you without a moment's notice. Or think of having a mother who spends all day sitting about drinking while the house is in a mess and the children are running the streets. Or think of being married to a philandering wife who has no scruples about extramarital affairs, behaving no better than an animal on heat. That's what these Cretan people were like. That's the way they lived and that's what they had to put up with. Imagine being married to a liar, having a a beast for a father or a mother who was a lazy glutton. There was a wealth of human suffering and shame behind that statement in Titus 1 and verse 12. And yet Paul came preaching the gospel. And the power of that gospel uh, changed lives. Husbands, wives, parents, children, even slaves. There was a radical transformation in their character. As Paul said uh, in another place, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Now that change, of course, was manifested initially, immediately. But also progressively as they grew in their newfound faith and as they were taught the word of God. There was this increasing manifestation of this new life. Look at the older men in verse 2. Men who had a lifetime of sin ingrained into them, who were liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. But now, through the teaching of doctrine, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and steadfastness, they were being transformed by the doctrine that was taught. From liars to men who were dignified, from evil beasts to self-controlled men, from lazy gluttons to sound and faith, love and steadfastness. Look at the older woman there in verse 3. Once liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons, but now by the grace of God, reverent in behavior, not uh, slanderers or slaves to wine. The gospel had come. And uh, uh, transformed them. And as they were taught doctrine, this doctrine continued to be a catalyst for change and growth in their lives. Look at the younger women in verses 4 and 5. Lovers of their own husbands and children. Not running with every Tom, uh, Dick and Harry. Working at home. Submissive to their husbands. This is what God had done and what God was doing in their lives. He had radically altered their lives for the better. And that change was affected not only by the gospel, but by the teaching that Titus um, brought. 
the fruit, you see, of sound doctrine is sound living. Doctrine changes people. It changed and was changing these people on the island of Crete. And it changes people and continues to change people on the island of Ireland. So what I'm saying is this. That we all ought to have an appetite for doctrine. Because doctrine is the catalyst for change, for growth, for development, for godliness in our lives. The importance of teaching doctrine, the fruit of teaching doctrine. And then thirdly, notice the way of teaching doctrine. You will notice there in verses 7 and 8, Paul gives specific instructions to Titus on how he is to teach this doctrine. Look at verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. You see, often people reject doctrine not on the basis of the doctrine itself but on the basis of the teachers that teach that doctrine. Doctrine uh, seems offensive to them because of the way that it's delivered. And so Paul tells Titus how he is to teach the young men and indeed the various groups in the churches uh, in Crete. Now this is important for us because all of us to one degree or another involved in a teaching ministry. It may be in Sunday school, it may be in the youth work or it may be with your own children at home. All of us have an influence upon others. And what Paul tells Titus applies to us all in some way. He says first that in our teaching we ought to teach with integrity. He says in verse 7, Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity. Uh, The um, NIV says sincerity. The authorized version says uncorruptness. It means no inconsistency. No double standards, no hypocrisy. It means there's no contradiction between our living and our teaching, between our speech and our practice. You will notice there he says, be a model of good works. The NIV says, be an example by doing what is good. Now that word model or example is an interesting word. It literally refers to the mark or impression That is made by an instrument such as a pen or a hammer. You remember Thomas refused to believe in the resurrection unless he saw the imprint of the nails in the hands of Jesus. That's the word, the model, the impression that the nails made in the hands of Jesus. So Paul is saying, let people see in you the imprint of the doctrine." That you teach, you must teach with utter sincerity and integrity so that they may see what you teach being worked out in your life so that you preach, uh, when you preach about holiness, they see holiness in you. You preach about love, they see love in you. You you preach about commitment to the church, they see commitment in you. You've got to live consistently, says Paul to Titus, this teacher uh, in the churches in Crete. You've got to live what you preach. And that applies to us. You cannot say, do what I say, but not as I do. I heard about a 
a mother who uh, was teaching her children about the importance of prayer and how we, we need to pray and how they needed to, uh, to pray. And the child turned to his mother and said, well, Mom, why don't you pray? Why don't you pray? You've got to live out what you teach. God can help you in times of trouble. He's that friend that sticks closer than any brother. Then why is it that your life goes to pieces at the first hurdle, obstacle, or difficulty that you, you, you face? It's wrong to steal. Why are you always late for work? Why is it that the stationery in our computer room at home is uh, from your place of employment? Why is that stationery there? Or I remember preaching in a a church a number of years ago and I I went into the bathroom to use the bathroom and I noticed the toilet roll was stamped with N-I-E-B, Northern Ireland Electricity Board. You must always control your temper. temper. Why are you always shouting at daddy? Whoever we teach must see that integrity, that sincerity in our lives. That the doctrine has left its imprint upon us and we model it out before those that we teach. That's the first thing, integrity. The second is dignity. Seriousness is uh, the NIV. Gravity, says the authorised version, that we communicate in our teaching something of the seriousness of the message that we teach. He says, don't be trivial or immature. Let people see that this is a, a serious business. I remember a number of years ago speaking at the Christian Union, uh, Christian Union in Belfast, and then going into a Christian cafe afterwards. And this uh, man came up to me dressed as a, a clown. You know, he had a big floppy hat with a, a flower coming out of it, a flower in his lapel, a yellow jacket, uh, check trousers, the big uh, shoes on. And uh, he came out and uh, reached me something. I thought it was in it like an explosive device that would um, bring confetti down ever, uh, everywhere or it would... Um, frighten me in, in, in some way and I was a bit hesitant and, and stood back and he says no it's, it's, it's a gospel tract and I says well why are you dressed as a clown and he says well we want to show people that Christianity is fun fun but it's a serious message it's not trivial it's the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. It concerns heaven and hell and the forgiveness of sins. Paul says, be sober, be serious, be dignified. Don't trivialize the message in any way. You cannot, says Richard Baxter, break men's hearts by jesting with them. After preaching on the wrath of God, from Romans, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones told his congregation, I, confre- I confess freely I cannot understand a joker in the pulpit. Go back and read the lives of the great men whom God has used the mightiest in the mightiest manner, and you will invariably find that they were serious men, sober men, men with the fear of God in them. When you teach, 
You've got to be serious that, that the, your disposition carries something uh, and conveys something about the seriousness and the earnestness of the message. Anything that trivialises detracts from the message and ultimately undermines the message. Don't joke about with the things of God, Paul says to Titus, especially when you teach the young men. For those young men might have a tendency to do that uh, over and above the other groups that are mentioned. So teach with integrity, with dignity. And then thirdly, he says, with soundness. Look at verse 8. And sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, that's the word that Paul uses in verse 1 when he refers to sound doctrine. That word speech could it's just the word, Greek word logos, which means word. So it could be translated, uh, could be translated, teach with a soundness of word. In other words, make sure that what you teach is in line with Scripture, is from Scripture, and is Scripture. Make sure what you teach is sound. It's sound doctrine that produces sound health. Don't come off with anything that's heretical, he says. Even when you're teaching children, you teach sound doctrine. Now, if Titus was to teach sound doctrine, and you and I are to teach sound doctrine, we need to know what sound doctrine is. We need to know what we believe. And we need to be able to articulate what we believe and defend what we believe. Doctrine is essential for spiritual health. And there's no excuse for being ignorant of, of the things of God. We have so many wonderful books in our, our bookshops that are aids to us, that help us to think through these eternal truths, these great doctrines uh, of the faith. I was thinking of the Reformers recently, and I was thinking particularly of Calvin and Anyone who writes a commentary now on, on any book in the Bible, they, they have all these other books that have been produced post-Calvin. Calvin was a prolific uh, commentator. and Most of them uh, build on Calvin and develop what uh, Calvin has said. But Calvin had nothing. We're so privileged. We have all these wonderful books that help us and uh, aid us in our understanding to, so that we can then instruct others with sound doctrine. The way we are to teach sound doctrine, we are to teach with integrity, with dignity, and with soundness. The importance of teaching doctrine, the fruit of teaching doctrine, the way of teaching doctrine, and then lastly I want you to notice the effect of teaching doctrine. Why is this so important this teaching of doctrine. Well, look at verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's talking about these servants, these slaves, and he says you are to teach them so that they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The NIV says to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And that's, that's it. This word for adorn or attractive um, is the word, the Greek word from which we get our uh, English word cosmetics. It's the idea of making beautiful or making attractive. That the doctrine that uh, Titus taught 
was to make even these servants, these slaves in Roman households, it was to make that doctrine attractive to them. So when doctrine is taught, it transforms the life and then that life adorns the doctrine so that the doctrine itself becomes attractive. You see, we are the only Bibles that the unbeliever will uh, ever read. D.L. Moody said the Bible is for the unbeliever is, is wrapped in shoe leather. They look at us and we are the Bibles that they read. And the only systematic theology that the unbeliever will ever consult is, is us. But if they can see in us that doctrine worked out in our lives, you see, then the doctrine of God our Savior becomes attractive to them. That they begin to ask questions. It was very difficult to engage in direct evangelism with people to, to walk up and give them a tract. But the way we conduct ourselves, the way we behave, the way that we walk up the aisle in Tesco's, the way we engage with people in shops or in coffee shops, that adorns the doctrine. It makes the doctrine attractive. So people look to Christ. And God willing, come to Christ as a result of the way that we live our lives. R.C. Sproul says that the doctrine has to enter our heads. And that's, that's so important. We've got to understand what sound doctrine is. But then it has to move from our head to our hearts so that it, it moves our affections, that we love him more uh, as we understand more about him that the deeper our understanding the deeper our affection for him uh, is the more we understand about the gospel the deeper our indebtedness and our our love for him becomes so it moves from the head it has to be in the head first of all so we have to understand it moves to the heart and then R.C. Sproul says it has to be worked out through our, our fingers. And as it's worked out through our fingers, people see the change that the doctrine has brought in our lives and so are attracted to Christ. There's nothing as attractive as holiness. One of my great heroes of the Christian faith is Robert Murray McShane who died at the age of 29. He was the minister of St. Peter's um, in Dundee and um, after he died they found uh, an unopened envelope on his his desk and his friends um, decided that they would open the letter to see what the letter uh, said and it was from a man who had attended the church over the last number of months and that last Sunday night before Robert Murray McShane died uh, he had come to faith in Christ and he was able to recall some of the sermon. But he says, what attracted me to Christ was you. Was you. The way that you lived your life. The way that you loved. The way that you cared for people. The evident holiness that you displayed. Well, he was adorning the doctrine. He made the doctrine attractive through the way that he lived. And that's the challenge that comes to us through this passage that we need to know our doctrine, but that the doctrine then makes us attractive. It adorns the uh, gospel of God our Saviour. So we have the importance of teaching doctrine, the fruit of teaching doctrine, the way of teaching doctrine with sincerity. 
with seriousness and soundly and the evidence of teaching doctrine that it adorns the doctrine, it transforms our lives and makes the doctrine attractive to others. So that's the challenge. Doctrine is dry. Doctrine is outdated. Doctrine is the divisive. Doctrine is dusty. Doctrine changes you into the people that God wants you to be. Uh, don't let anybody tell you that doctrine is irrelevant for Christian living. Doctrine is fundamental. Amen.